Thank you so much, Matt, for leading us in our singing. And thanks to the instrumentalists for their assistance. And thanks to all of you for raising your voices together in song. Back in 2013, Time Magazine actually ran an article about congregational singing. It was entitled, Singing Changes Your Brain. And I'd like to read just a couple of excerpts from that to you. It begins, when you sing, musical vibrations move through you, altering your physical and emotional landscape. Group singing, or congregational singing, for those who've done it, is the most exhilarating and transformative of all. And here's why. It takes something incredibly intimate, a song that begins inside of you, and it shares it with a room full of people. But then it comes back to you as something even more thrilling, as harmony. It goes on, science has been hard at work trying to explain why group singing has such a calming yet energizing effect on people. What researchers are beginning to discover is that singing is like an infusion of the perfect tranquilizer, the kind that both soothes your nerves and elevates your spirit. And it turns out you don't even have to be a good singer to reap the rewards, which is a relief to most of us. According to one 2005 study, group singing, quote, can produce satisfying and therapeutic sensations even when the sound produced by the vocal instrument is of mediocre quality. There's another study cited in this article that says when we sing together as a congregation, our hearts even start beating in sync. So we're not only sharing the same words and offering the same melody, but our bodies are synchronizing with one another. And so the article concludes, group singing is cheaper than therapy, healthier than drinking, and certainly more fun than working out. It's the one thing in life where feeling better is pretty much guaranteed. And friends, the scriptures would affirm all of that. There are many places in Scripture where the emotional power of music is put on display. But the Scriptures also go deeper than that. The scriptures tell us that congregational singing is also one of the means that God has ordained for us to glorify Him with, with our lives. And the Scriptures also tell us that as we engage in this congregational singing, God is also doing a spiritual work inside of us. Through the gift of music, God is elevating our own affections for Him, deepening our love for Him, even as we are singing our praises to Him together. And this leads us into today's text, which is Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Again, Revelation 15, verses 1 through 8. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1036. Now, here in this passage, we find a congregational hymn which will be sung by the saints in heaven while God is meeting out his tribulation judgments on the unregenerate world below. You see, God's people in heaven are going to be so excited at this point, so excited to see that God is finally preparing the world for the arrival of the kingdom of Christ, so excited to see that the tyranny of Antichrist and all evil is finally being eradicated, that they're just going to burst forth in congregational singing. And today we're going to look at the contents of their hymn together, and then we'll draw some lessons at the end. Before we get into the text, though, I would like to offer a word of prayer. So let's bow together. 
Father, we do thank you so much for the gift of music. And thank you, Lord, for redeeming our souls and giving us a desire to come to you with songs of worship and praise. And as we examine this worship song, which will be sung one day by your saints in heaven, Lord, might we learn much from it, both how to worship you and how important it is that we worship you. Lord, we pray that your spirit would minister to all of us today, draw us all a little bit closer to yourself through our study of this text, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's look at this text together now, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle John is writing here, and he writes, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Now here's the sign. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now remember, at this point in Revelation, we are looking at the great tribulation, this coming time in which God will dispense his judgments on the world of unbelief. It is a seven-year period of time representing the completion or the perfection of God's cleansing of this world in preparation for the inauguration of Christ's earthly kingdom. And in fact, the judgments of this time period come in waves of seven. So first there were seven seal judgments, then seven trumpet judgments, and now we're going to see the seven angels with seven plagues. These will be the seven bowl judgments. Perfect and complete judgment on a world that has rejected God. John sees these seven angels receiving these seven plagues, preparing to dispense the final judgments. These are the judgments that will conclude the tribulation, which will inaugurate then the kingdom of Christ on earth. But now verse 2, John sees a couple of other things in this vision. He writes, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, we were introduced to this, this sea back in chapter 4 of Revelation. We were told that this sea is right before God's throne. And it's a sea of water and fire, signifying God's twofold office of, of judge and savior. So the water, he's a giver of life. The fire, he is a consumer of all that is evil. And then John sees a, a third sight. He sees people beside the sea. He says, Also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. They're standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So John sees this redeemed group of people. They are people who have conquered the beast and his image and the number of his name. In other words, here are people who had come to saving faith in Christ during this tribulation period, and now they have died and they've gone up to heaven. Some maybe died of natural causes, others died because of persecution. But now here they are. They are beside this glassy sea, right beside God at his throne. And they have harps in their hands. That's because this group is a choir. And they are going to sing together a song of worship. The Apostle John identifies the song beginning of verse 3. He says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The Song of Moses, this is a call back to Exodus chapter 15. 
By that point in the book, Moses had led the Israelites out of their enslavement in Egypt. They safely crossed the Red Sea, preparing to head into the Promised Land. And Moses pauses at that point, and he leads the Israelites in this congregational hymn. And it's a hymn that celebrates God's deliverance of them from the tyranny of Pharaoh. Well, now here in this coming day, we see a group of redeemed saints in heaven. They're singing their own song of deliverance. This one is directed to the Lamb, that is to Christ. They're praising Him for delivering them from the tyranny of Antichrist. You see, now they're in heaven enjoying their reward. Friends, I wish we could know the tune of this hymn which they sing. Unfortunately, we'll have to just content ourselves with knowing the lyrics. But let's ponder their lyrics together. First, they praise God for his works. Notice, they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, saying, here stands a one of their hymn, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. So they praise God for his works. They call his works great and amazing. Now, the word translated great here is the Greek word megos. It's where we get our English word mega from. This is a superlative term. It means that God's works are the greatest. They're the, they're the most excellent of all works. And his works are amazing. That means they're works which leave all spectators wide-eyed and slack-jawed. They can't believe what they have just seen God do. God's works are great because God himself is great. They say, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. A compound name for God. They call him the Lord. This emphasizes his kingship. They call him God, emphasizing his deity. They call him the Almighty, which emphasizes his power. You see, friends, this is why God is capable of offering great and awesome works. It's because he is a great and awesome God. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. He is sovereign over all things. And God knows how to use his power to accomplish his good purposes. And in this coming period, we see God doing just that, cleansing the world of all of its sin and evil and rebellion, preparing a throne for his son to reign as king. And so God's people in heaven are praising him, saying, Great and amazing, great and awesome are your deeds, O God. But they're not just going to praise him for his works. They will also praise him for his ways. In other words, not only can God perform great feats, but God's entire manner of conducting himself is morally upright. Look at what they say next, end of verse 3. It says, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Just and true. The word translated just is our word dikaios. It means God's ways are righteous. All that he does is not just a display of power, but it's a display of his moral goodness. He is a righteous God. And all his ways are true. In this context, it means that God always acts in accordance with the truth. See, our God is an all-knowing and all-seeing God. And with those all-seeing eyes, he can pierce right down to the dividing of our souls and spirits, our joints and marrow. He knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. 
And God deals with each person according to the truth of that person. God knows which ones are his and which ones are not his. He can see past the veneer. He sees past your wealth, your beauty, your fame. He sees past your verbal uh, lip service to him. No, he sees into your very soul. He knows whether you are among his redeemed. And he deals with each person according to the truth of who they are. And so his deeds are great and awesome. His ways are just and true, and they will prevail on this earth. That is why he is called, end of verse 3, the king of the nations. Friends, God is the only true ruler of this world. God made the world. God owns the world. Even now, he is asserting his lordship over it, and yet he is still permitting rebels to walk this earth. One day that will come to an end. He will mete out his judgments. He will install his son as king. The government will rest on his king's shoulders and his millennium will commence. His righteousness will be established. Evil will be banished and the whole world will know and acknowledge that he is the king. And this is what this choir will be singing about at the dawn of Christ's kingdom on earth. Well, now we look at verses 4 through 8, and here we find that not only will this choir sing of God's works and sing of God's ways, they will also sing of God's worth, His worth. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's take that verse, just a phrase at a time. First, you see, they worship God because he is worthy of our fear. They ask the rhetorical, the rhetorical question, who will not fear you, O Lord? That means, Lord, in light of all that you are and all that you do, in light of your works, your ways, who would be so foolish as to not come before you with trembling? Who would be so foolish as to not want to honor you, give you the respect that you deserve? And then he says, God is also worthy of our praise. Who will not glorify your name? Now, to glorify God is to magnify God but not the way that a, a microscope magnifies a blood cell, you understand. Because in that case, something very small is being made to look bigger than it really is. Now, we don't glorify God like that. Rather, we, we glorify, we magnify God the way a telescope does a galaxy. The telescope's job is to help us see something that is big and beautiful and to see it as big as it really is. That's how we magnify or glorify God. It is to receive from Him revelation, communicating who He is, what He is like, His works, His ways, and we take all of that information in, we process it in our redeemed hearts, and we delight in all that we see of God there. And then we respond by reflecting it back to God with words and songs and a lifestyle of praise a lifestyle of helping others to see God for as big as he really is. A life that shows that we believe that God is big and awesome and great. 
So who, God, in light of who you are, who will not fear you? Who will not glorify your name? And what follows from here is a series of three clauses giving specific reasons for his worthiness of our worship. First reason, he is holy. They sing, for you alone are holy. The root meaning of holiness is separation. To say that God is holy means he is separate from this world. He is above the world. He is the creator of it. There's a fundamental difference between the creator and the creature. He's infinite. We are finite. But it means more than that. It also means he is morally perfect. He is separate from the world in the sense that this world is under, the, under slavery to sin, but God is free from sin. He is absolutely morally perfect. So he is worthy of our fear. He is worthy of our glory, of our glorifying him because he is separate from us. He is different from us. He's greater in every conceivable way from us, proven by his works, proven by his ways. But then the second reason listed here in verse 4, also because all nations will one day come and worship him. That means that one day he will have the supremacy over all things. Again, even as he is now supreme, his supremacy is not acknowledged by all people. Some do not even acknowledge that he exists. But one day that will change. He will assert himself in this world and every knee will bow. Some enjoy, some with clenched teeth, but all will bow before him. He will be king of all the nations. One day, the worshipers of God won't just be the scattered few in local assemblies around the world. It will be the nations themselves. They will come and bring their offerings to God. All people will acknowledge him. That day will begin when Christ takes his throne And the millennium commences. He is holy. He will have the supremacy. And another reason why he should be worshipped, because, end of verse 4, his righteous acts have been revealed. That means he has proven himself to be goodness personified. He's proven himself to be goodness personified. Friends, for all of these reasons and more, he deserves the worship of all of his people. And on that day, when God prepares to send out those seven angels to pour out those seven bowls of his wrath, thus bringing his judgments to a close and bringing the dawn of his kingdom, when that day comes, God's people in heaven will be singing about it. They will be singing a victory song. They will be singing their worship to God because they have seen his works. They have seen his ways. They know they flow from the worth of his person. And they will want him and all the world to know of the greatness of God. Now, friends, very quickly, we look at verses 5 through 8. Let's see what happens after their song. John writes, verse 5, And after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. Now, that tent of witness is just another word for the temple. Remember, we learned in earlier chapters of Revelation, there is a heavenly temple. This is where the throne of God is found. Well, now we see 
After this, this hymn sung by the saints in heaven, the gates of the temple are thrown open. This means God is now preparing his final act. And now verse 6, it says, And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. So God is now thrown open the gates of his sanctuary, and he is dispatching those seven angels. They're being sent out with their seven plagues. They're going to mete out God's final judgments before Christ's kingdom comes. You notice the angels are dressed in bright linens and with golden sashes. They're dressed as God's royal emissaries. They are out to do his work on the unregenerate world below. And then verse 7, it says, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now, we also learned about these four living creatures in chapter 4. These are angelic beings that surround the throne of God. No being in heaven is closer in physical proximity to God than these four living creatures. And it is one of these creatures who is handing to the seven angels the seven plagues that they must dispense. Here, here pictured as seven bowls. Those bowls contain God's judgments. They will be poured out one at a time. We will see that in chapter 16 as we go through that together. One by one, the seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out, God's tribulation judgments coming to their end. But friends, as we come to the close of this passage, I want to focus our attention on a single lesson. Now, there are many, many lessons to be gleaned from this text. But just one that I want to direct us to now. It's very simply this, that we were made to worship. We were made to worship. Isaiah 43, verse 6, puts it this way, Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, all who are called by my name, for they were made for my glory. God made us, in other words, to see his greatness as displayed in his works and his ways, in his moral worth. We were meant to see his greatness, to delight in the sight of it and then to respond back to him with joyful praise, with words in song, and with our very lives. We were made for this, my friends. And the remarkable thing about it is that God has also made us in such a way that when we fulfill our purpose and we see and savor the glory of God and reflect it back to him in a life of worship, then something good happens inside of us too. God not only gets praise, but we get pleasure. Our own souls are enlarged as we engage in the worship of God. And it's even more profound when we worship with an assembly of other believers. Our own souls are enlarged. Our delight in God increases. Our love for the attributes of God are stirred. Our faith in God is deepened. And so God's purpose for us is good 
as we seek to glorify Him, we are also, we are also increasing our own joy in the here and now. And so, friends, as we begin to draw this time to a close, let me ask you this question. Will you resolve to become a true worshiper of God? Will you resolve to become a true worshiper of God? First, that means, will you pursue the new birth? Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he will not even see the kingdom of God. Friends, if you would know God and delight in Him, if you would become a a person who worships God in spirit and in truth, which is to say a true worshiper, then you must pursue after the new birth. You must go to God in prayer asking Him for the new birth. You must go to God confessing all of your sins, confessing the fact that you have been devoting your life to the worship of other things. Maybe you've worshipped money or fame or beauty or, or power or pleasure. Maybe a false god. Maybe something else entirely. Maybe just yourself. But you must confess to God that you've been worshipping the wrong object. And you must confess that this is sin that it's worthy of God's righteous judgment, but that you want to change now. You are turning away from that. Now you want to be a worshiper of Him. You confess your sin. You declare your new allegiance, your new desire for God. Go to Him in faith, trusting in the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to earth, lived a life of perfect righteousness. When He went to the cross, He was offering Himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He died to correct our false worship. And he rose from the grave on the third day, proving his power over sin and death and hell. And he extends to all the invitation to come. Come to faith in him. Become a worshiper of God through him. And find what you were made for. My friend, you were made to worship. Will you not become a true worshiper of God? Come to him in saving faith. You can do it this very day, right even from that seat, just asking God if he would forgive you and declare your newfound allegiance to him. But then you need to talk to one of us afterwards, I mean me or Pastor Scott or another believer here, and let us help you take those next spiritual steps. Will you come to God in faith? Will you become a true worshiper? And then, believing friend, will you give your life to building your biography of God? Because, you see, the quality of our worship is directly connected to the quality of our knowledge of God and of our delight in what we know of God. Will you build your biography of God? You do that by pouring over the scriptures every day of your life and by praying to God, asking His Spirit to minister to you as you read through His Word. And you do it by listening to sermons derived from God's Word. Will you take in all that you can? Every single passage of scripture reveals information to us about God, and it's information that will be used of God to fuel our worship and at the same time then to fuel our joy in God. Build that biography of God. Then learn to see God's hand in all of life, whether times are good for you or bad, whether you're in health or in sickness, whether you have all the money you need in the bank or you're in time of great need. See the providential hand of God in all of it. And conclude, like the worshipers here in Revelation 15 did, that God's works are awesome, God's ways are upright, God is worthy of worship. 
He is holy. Learn to see His hand in everything and express your praise to Him. Friend, will you resolve to become a true worshiper of God today? And will you also resolve to worship God in song? Worship God in song. And not just in private, but also publicly as a part of corporate worship. Even if you're self-conscious about your own voice, will you worship God publicly in song? I know most of us do not have fantastic voices. And that makes us self-conscious about it. We don't mind singing in the shower or singing while we're mowing the lawn or... Sometimes I've been humming through the church building and then I turn a corner and I see somebody I didn't know was here and um, suddenly uh, I become conscious of my lack of singing abilities. We're all very self-conscious about our own singing voices. But the wonderful thing is the scriptures don't say only sing if you have a beautiful voice. It just says make a joyful noise to the Lord. If you can make a noise that approximates the melody of the hymn, offer that to God. Offer it as a testimony to all of your fellow saints around you that you love God and that you want to worship God and that through your bold singing, you will encourage their boldness too. Because, friends, music has a special ability to raise our godly affections. Through music, we don't just think about the truths of God, but we actually begin to feel the truths experientially. The vibration of our voices resonates with our very bodies. As we are in a congregation, our heart beats sync up with one another. God, this Holy Spirit, does an internal work in us, driving the truths of the hymns home to us as we sing. Music is powerful to shape our thinking, our feeling, our willing to raise our religious affections. So will you not worship God in song and in the assembly of the redeemed? Friends, there is a sense in which we can say that Christ died to build a choir. He died to build a choir because he died to build an assembly of people who would be redeemed through his blood and then would offer their praise to him in song. Will you not join that great choir Join your voices to the other voices of the redeemed and praise him. And will you not encourage others to do so as well? Through your own example, but also through your verbal witness, and also by inviting people to join you on Sunday mornings in this assembly as we engage in corporate worship together. You know, 1 Corinthians tells us that our corporate worship has evangelistic power. It says that as non-believers enter the assembly and they see the unity of God's people and they hear their songs and they listen to the prayers and as they hear the words of God expounded, then the non-believer looks around and says, truly God is among these people. And God uses it to draw them to saving faith. So will you not, not harness the evangelistic power of biblical worship and be a singer and invite people to come and to join you in the assembly as you sing. My friends, God has made us to worship. He has made us to sing as part of our worship. And just as singing is a big part of the believer's life here and now, it's going to be a big part of life in the world to come. In heaven we'll be singing. In the kingdom we'll be singing. 
as time comes to an end and we enter eternity itself, we will be singing. And it will be a wonderful experience when we all do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the day you've given to us. Lord, we want to be true worshipers of you. We want to sing hymns to the Lamb like, like the one offered here, here in Revelation 15. So, Lord, would you draw the non-believer to saving faith in your Son? Would you help all of us to pursue hard after our knowledge of you? Help us to build our biography of you. And, Lord, help us to overcome whatever, whatever personal hindrances there might be to to enthusiastic worship, to enthusiastic singing in the assembly. Lord, we ask this because you deserve our worship and also because we know that our own joy as your people will be elevated if we will do this. It's what we were made for and it's when we are happiest. And Lord, use the testimony of our collective worship to reach still others for Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.